Welcome to the podcast on sources of the reign of Robert I and the Anglo-Scottish Wars of Independence. This is a podcast produced by the Arts and Humanities Research Council funded project The Community of the Realm in Scotland, 1249-1424, History, Law and Charters in a Recreated Kingdom. The project team is made up of historians from the Universities of Edinburgh, Glasgow and King's College London and is recorded in the King's Online Studio at King's College London. Each week we take one of the important sources from the reign of Robert Bruce, King of Scots from 1306 to 1329, and explain what it is, how it survives, and why it matters. I'm Alice Taylor, reader in medieval history at King's College London, and this week Matthew Hammond, research associate on the Community of the Realm in Scotland project, will be taking us through Robert I's charters. So, Matthew, the subtitle of the Community of the Realm project is History, Law and Charters in a Recreated Kingdom. And so I suppose this podcast is about the third element, charters, asking what they were and why they mattered. So, Matt, what actually is a charter? Well, the charter was the most common document in the Middle Ages that we find doing the workaday business of buying and selling, leasing and renting, giving to the church or to relatives. They were single sheets of parchment, which were made from animal hides, and they were usually written in Latin. So why did the kings of Scotland start using charters? While charters did exist in the early Middle Ages, their numbers really exploded across Europe in the Central or High Middle Ages because of the increasing growth of the bureaucracy and record-keeping in the church and because of a vast spread of monasteries across the continent. The monks started writing charters when a king or lord made a gift, and uh, that's the context for the earliest charters of kings of Scots, which date to around 1100. Then, eventually, the kings started forming their own writing offices, and and then they began issuing their own charters to their lay supporters, and in Scotland, that's from really the 1160s. 1160s. So basically by the time of of Robert I, kings have been making charters for about a century and a half. That's right. And over that time, they start making them uh, much more routinely and systematically. Okay. So what do then royal charters have to do with this idea of the community of the realm? Well, the language of the charters The precise wording of things like the king's title, for example, were reflections of the way in which the king and how his advisors uh, wanted the king to be seen. The language of the charters reflected the power and prestige of the monarchy. From time to time, uh, the kings raised the stakes. For example, King William the Lion added Dei Gracia, by the grace of God, to his title. And his son, Alexander II, started using the royal we, what historians call the plural of majesty. That's great. So what about Robert I? What does he do? Well, when With Rob- charters, I mean, not in general. <laughs> when Robert was enthroned at Schoon in 1306, he was really just at the start of a scrappy rebellion that would take many years to uh, grow into anything approaching a stable royal government. Robert and his clerks wanted to show some kind of continuity with the past and make a claim to the authority that the pre-Wars of Independence kings of Scots had through continuing that kind of prestige language in his charters. For the first few years, as he struggled to gain a foothold, just producing any charters was a challenge. And we really only have a handful from before about 1312. But it was the victory at Bannockburn in 1314 that gave him the stability to begin to govern more systematically at home. And it's really from that point on that we start getting charters a lot more frequently Mm. from Robert. 
Yeah, I suppose that makes sense. So does Robert actually use the idea of the community of the realm in his charters? Occasionally. The idea of the community of the realm was first used in Scotland to try to embody the, the sense of the kingdom in the absence of a king after the death of Alexander III, when the kingdom was just being governed by guardians. So the notion of the kingdom as a community was from time to time useful to Robert, particularly when he was doing something controversial. One example is the decision he took after Bannockburn in a parliament at Cambus Kenneth in November of 1314 to disinherit and dispossess those Scottish landholders who had not come over to his fealty. In other words, at this point, you really had to pick sides between whether you were going to be the King of England's man or the King of Scotland's man. And this was framed as uh, not just a decision made by the king and not even just with the consent of the kind of big cheese of the realm, you know, the the bishops and earls and so forth. But it was being done supposedly with the consent of the whole community of the realm. So he's referring to this political idea that had currency within the kingdom's political history to try and give um, a a sense of authority to this quite controversial decision. Mm. And he did that again in 1326, going even further with it, uh, by essentially raising a new annual tax, but framing that in terms of an indenture or an agreement made between the king and the community of the realm. Great. That's very interesting. So did the charters have much to say at all about Robert's military activity? Not in so many words, but they very much reflect the fact that Robert... Uh, had to put the whole country on a war footing, and that he was struggling to try to reestablish authority and to rebuild in areas that had been devastated by the war. So, for example, in 1315, Robert restored various Cummin family lands, and the Cummins were his big rival family within Scotland that he had to vanquish before he could become king. And so he was giving lands to the Abbey of Deer in Buchan, specifically and explicitly in compensation for damages caused by the war. Mm, kind of a way of kind of saying, I know I've got rid of your patrons, but <laughs> I'm really sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, because that leads to, to the question that, you know, given that the commons are, I mean, essentially, they're one of the kingdom's biggest landholders in 1306. Yes. Um before Robert comes to the throne, was, after kind of killing their, their leader, was Bruce just able to redistribute their lands and seize their lands and then re- redistribute it? Well, in a word, yes. <laughs> um, and that was actually a key part of how Robert um, was able to govern. And it was something that reshaped the geography of lordship in ways that would last for centuries. Mm. So, for example, the common lands in the north were instrumental in Robert's recreation of the earldom of Murray, which he gave to his right-hand man, uh, Thomas Randolph. And a lot of Bruce's charters are about giving away, basically, the land that he's seized from his rivals. Well, um, quite a few are. Uh, he sometimes specifically named uh, someone as his enemy in order to take the land, and this was called escheat. He also gave away a good deal of land that had been under royal control, a land which was known as Thanage. Thanages, yeah. So why would Robert give away these Thanages, these big estates, under his own control? 
Well, he was essentially forced into giving away his own land as well as the land that he was able to sort of forfeit, uh, forfeited land or confiscated land because he needed a lot of land in order to essentially buy or reward the loyalty of the supporters who had chosen his side. And heritable gifts of land were a very sought-after way of rewarding um, yeah, these are like the knights big, the who big supported ticket them. Item. Yeah. And so um, his clerks actually introduced the phrase in free barony to Scottish charters around this time. And so this was the sort of traditional military feudalism idea mm. of having a knight service. But Robert took that model and then tweaked it mm. in ways that... Um, reflected the changing nature of warfare at that time. So what you get is a lot of lands given in free barony in return for the service of archers because the use of the bow and arrow is becoming much more important in warfare. In the western parts of the kingdom, uh, lords were often required to do ship service. For example, he gave Colin Campbell a barony in Argyle in return for the service of a ship of 40 oars. Mm. And Robert really needed to get his support because the traditional leaders of Argyll, the MacDougalls, had sided with the English. And in also, in many cases, the charters of free barony simply specify service owed and want, which means that there was some kind of customary service attached to the land. But whether the king or the lord even always knew what that service was is not always clear. And that could suggest that the real service done on the ground was perhaps more arbitrary and needs-driven than the kind of formulaic language of the charters. Um, That's interesting because from what you've said, it shows that actually these formulaic charters are actually responding to real military need as much as anything else. Did yes. they tell us anything about Robert's attempt to build up a functioning government again after the wars and during the wars? Yes, they do. And there are a lot of hints in the charters that law and order had kind of broken down in many localities. A frequent phrase in Robert's charters was in the time of King Alexander, hearkening back to the king whose death in 1286 had really kicked off the whole conflict in the first place. So there was this sense that in the time since Alexander, the normal functioning of things had deteriorated and that the kind of the dial needed to be reset. And this was also a big part of Robert's strategy of setting up landholding in free barony. Another novelty in the language of his charters was the explicit inclusion of the homages and services of freeholders. The free men living in the barony were supposed to recognize the lordship of the baron and were supposed to perform certain services. This would include the authority of the baron to run his own court to deal with certain kinds of crime locally. So the king would have hoped that these men, the barons, would be able to reestablish that authority on the local level. It's also mentioned that they often owed what's called suit of court, which meant that they had to do kind of a jury duty regularly at the sheriff's court, which was the court in which the king exercised his justice throughout the realm on the ground. So the barons were essential in running their own local courts and also in the function of Robert's sheriff courts um, and were thus really uh, key to re-establishing that authority throughout the kingdom. Mm, so, it's interesting. so it's almost as if that because Robert needs um, his nobility and his baronage so much that his charters are also increasingly defining their privileges vis-a-vis -vis his own. Absolutely. Um, 
so all of this just shows how much we need to kind of look at Robert's charters. I mean, what is like, what's the community of the realm project, the Couture project doing to make these charters accessible to the interested public? One of the main goals of the project has been to add all the charters of Robert I to the people of medieval Scotland database. This includes 100 additional charters to the 400 or so printed in Professor Duncan's 1988 edition. So basically, we found an extra 100 charters in the rolls, which will be a subject of a future podcast. But if you go to the POMS database at www.poms.ac.uk, you can explore Robert's charters in all sorts of ways, such as looking up ship service or archer service or the one-tenth of a night. (laughs) And you can even uh, view um, results on a map and search with a map, which, for example, makes it very easy to see if Robert was up to anything in the area where you live. And so the POMS database is extracting essentially the information yes. that Robert's Charters contains and allows you to search with it and basically play around with it to That's see right, yeah. what's going on in different parts of Scotland in re- that Robert's Charters can tell us about. But what if, for example, I wanted to actually see the original documents themselves, the original charters? Well, the actual original medieval manuscripts are kept in a variety of archives and libraries, but they've also all been edited and published. Professor Duncan's 1988 edition, Volume 5 of the Regesta Regem Scotorum series, published by Edinburgh University Press, is an excellent edition. And further, the Rolls copies of Robert I's charters are printed in John Maitland Thompson's Register of the Great Seal, and you can actually get that online, can't you? You can search for that at yes, archive.org. that's true. Now, the documents are uh, usually in Latin, sometimes in French. Duncan's edition does sometimes provide some explanation of the documents, some details, some notes. Some of them, those that were related to parliaments and councils, were also um, have also been edited and published online by the Records of the Parliaments of Scotland. Mm project, which is easily accessible. And that is in the original and in an English translation. That's great. Um, So thank you very much, Matthew. And if you've liked this podcast, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, or you can follow the project on Twitter. Our handle is at Couture, that's C-O-T-R 2020, and visit our website online at www.couture.ac.uk.